Hey, and welcome back to the Biomedical Engineering and Imaging Institute here at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai for another episode of Imagination. Um, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus for a while, but we're back and we're stronger than ever. And we're uh, most excited because for the first time in this podcast's history, we have all four guests today. Well, I should say all of us, uh, Mallory, uh, myself, and uh, our two guests all in the same room, which is an unbelievably exciting thing to uh, to finally do. So it's a real conversation in person featuring eye contact, um, a true gift. Um, so I'm going to pass it over to Mallory now to introduce our incredible guests for the day. Thank you, Jazz, and welcome back, everybody. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Octavia Bain, Assistant Professor of Radiology, and Dr. Sarah Lewis, Associate Professor of Radiology here at Mount Sinai. So, uh, Drs. Bain and Lewis, would you like to tell us a bit about yourselves and, and your journey to getting here at BIMI? Uh, hello, I'm Octavia Bain. So, I have been with BIMI since 2013. Uh, I came to BIMI as a postdoc in biomedical engineering after uh, getting my PhD from Northwestern University in Chicago. Before then, I studied physics uh, at the University of Chicago. But ever since I was a college freshman, I wanted to get into medical imaging, and I didn't know exactly the way to go about it. So uh, in college, as a physics student, I volunteered um, in radiology labs, in, in medical imaging labs, and for my search for a graduate program, I, I also focused, focused on those programs. Uh, you know, a medical imaging lab could have been in biomedical engineering, could have been in physics, in medical physics, in biophysics, so I visited as many labs as I could and learned about as much about them as possible. And I came here at BIMI to work on body imaging on cancer with Dr. Tawuli. And from there, I branched out in into uh, diffuse liver disease and eventually into kidney transplant and kidney cancer, uh, which brings us to our, the topic of conversation today on our projects in renal MRI. Wonderful. Thank you. And Dr. Lewis, tell us about your journey to BIMI. Sure. Hi, I'm Sarah. <clears throat> I'm not a native New Yorker. I'm actually originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I became interested in medicine in fourth grade, actually, and this is a true story. We were running um, a race in gym class, and I tripped and fell, and I broke three fingers. And I remember sitting in my pediatrician's office, seeing the x-rays, and just being so fascinated. And it was at that moment in fourth grade that I knew I was going to be a physician and really didn't look back since then. Um, for my undergraduate, I went to Colgate University, um, and then I went back to Ohio for medical school, where I went to Case Western, which I really loved. It's a wonderful medical school. My, um, my husband's not from Cleveland. He's from New York, and he thought that, you know, our next steps should bring us closer to New York. So he said that, you know, all right, you know, pick a program in New York. Let's, uh, let's move forward. And actually, I uh, you know, wanted to do my training here at Mount Sinai because it reminded me the most of Case Western. And I've been here ever since 2005 um, when I you know, came here as an internal medicine intern and then did my uh, radiology training afterwards. So I'm a clinical radiologist, um, and I really became very interested in research um, when Dr. Talley came, our mentor. And he had such a, you know, a passion and a vision for it. And you know, we started working together. Um, and you know, each project kind of grew in terms of its uh, scope and complexity. And it was really kind of through this work that really kind of helped foster my interest in research. And that's when, you know, Octavia and I met and we kind of synergized and harmonized, you know, each of our um, strengths. And um, it's been really, really a fantastic learning um, experience for me to work with her. 
and to you know kind of learn everything that she's doing from the physics and the biomedical engineering standpoint. And this sense of collaboration and having a strong mentor kind of helped us really kind of propel our you know work in kidney imaging, both for you know kidney transplants as well as for you know native kidneys and kidney cancer imaging. Well, it's extremely cool, and I love that both of you guys kind of have these initial roots of uh, of excitement of medicine. I'm curious whether imaging has lived up to all you've kind of dreamed it to be. I also find it to be the most fascinating thing. It seems like magic. I think, you know, back when x-rays were first invented, people were trying to figure out how best to utilize them, whether it was going to be, you know, in a, uh, a shoe shop and figuring out how a, a shoe best fits and everyone ending up with foot cancer. Or um, it's also had some really fascinating uh, impacts in architecture and the formation of modern architecture. But I'm just, you know, as two tangents, I think that it is inherently an inspiring thing to see. It's the first view into something that uh, that we've never really had the perspective of before. So kind of as a transition into your guys' work in kidneys and your guys' work in medical imaging, what answers have you guys kind of found through uh, approaching research from an imaging perspective? What answers to what clinical problems or I guess. applications? Yeah, because you guys both have this innate in you know kind of uh, a fascination with science and medicine, and and imaging I think is such a unique way to tackle it. And we're fortunate at BIMI for that to be our kind of main hub and the main thing to grab onto. Um, so has has that been a, a really rewarding path? It sounds like for for both of you guys. I think one answer <coughs> that I've learned kind of through my experience is that imaging is a central component of patient care, whether it's you know going through a diagnostic pathway or a monitoring pathway when a patient has a disease or condition that needs to be followed, that really, you know, imaging is such a central element to patient care these days and that, you know, I think the role of imaging will only grow as we become, as we learn more and as our methods, you know, improve with time, um, that the role of imaging will continue to increase. Yes, I, I think uh, it has tremendous potential for non-invasive diagnosis of conditions. We can correlate right now, I guess I'm, I have a more modest objective of just correlating the findings, especially the quantitative findings with the pathology and with the more invasive methods. I'm not saying we can diagnose, sometimes we can, but maybe if with some of the methods we study, we're not yet there. But we do see strong correlations and strong signals that would allow us to do the quantitative imaging first and then perhaps refer the patient to a biopsy to the more invasive test. And if in 10 years we can do so, we could spare some people some biopsies or some invasive tests, I'm happy. <laughs> totally, totally. And so I think that's a perfect transition into your guys' work in kidneys. So um, give us, uh, you know, for I think most people listening, including myself, when I first started working here, kidney is the organ that looks like a bean. That's about all you know about it. Um, give us, please, the uh, a little bit of a summary of the clinical issues and the complexities um, just specifically in diagnosis, like you're talking about, like these invasive procedures that are typical. So what things are typically going wrong with the kidneys and, uh, and, and what are typically the ways that that gets approached and the issues that you guys are fixing through imaging? So... Kidneys are beautiful. They do look like beans. We have, you know, most of us have two of them. Um, some of the tricky things about, you know, kidney disease, and I'm talking about the renal function um, that it serves in the body, is that, you know, kidney disease can progress silently, really, until it will clinically present at a very advanced stage. And so at that point, you know, kidney disease may be irreversible or may be at a point where, you know, it can't be necessarily treated um, sufficiently to kind of go back to normal function. 
So we're really missing like a big opportunity early in the disease course to be able to detect and then intervene if needed. So I think that's been a major kind of unmet area in you know nephrology clinically. Um, you know, right now kidney health is monitored you know clinically by the doctors by doing you know blood tests or urine tests or so on. But the development of ways to kind of identify kidney disease early will be very important to kind of help patients down the road. Right, so together with the liver, the kidneys are basically the filtration system, the poison control system of the body. Um, and they do suffer from a lot of the conditions that affect a lot of Americans today, like hypertension and diabetes. And um, these diseases silently affect the kidney over many years. And one of the metrics by which doctors judge the severity of kidney disease is the glomerular filtration rate, which is measured from a blood test or more invasively from nuclear medicine tests. And, but by the time you see a drop in this number, in GFR, a lot of the function is already lost and irreversible. Um, so in the kidney, there are filtration units called glomeruli or nef and nephrons. Um, and we are born with a finite number of them and then we keep losing them throughout life. I was very fascinated to learn of this at kidney conferences, and now they're looking into ways to count these nephrons, to get a nephron number estimate non-invasively. They, they are able to do so in animal subjects and ex vivo, like in cadaver kidneys, but not yet in live, walking, talking humans. So I think that's one, of, uh, one wonderful area of, of investigation in the future. What we are looking at with imaging in our group, though, is to correlate um, imaging with fibrosis in the kidney or with vascular disease in the kidney. We're more interested in parenchymal dysfunction, so basically in dysfunction that affects the tissue, not the vessels feeding the kidney, but the tissue itself, such as fibrosis or inflammation. And there are MR techniques uh, like diffusion-weighted imaging and perfusion-weighted imaging, um, and also uh, quantitative imaging that looks at different MRI constants, T1, so called T1 or T2 star, uh, that can give us a measure of um, the water content and of the fibrosis in the kidney. So virtually any injury or insult impacting the kidney will uh, result in the development of fibrosis. So fibrosis is the kind of the final common pathway of injury. And like just as we see in the liver with liver fibrosis and cirrhosis, it's scarring. Um, so our thought, you know, in developing our studies was to use a bunch of um, complementary MRI methods to try to test or probe you know, kidney biology in different ways. So just as Octavia mentioned, the diffusion, looking at the cellularity within the tissues and different methods uh, such as arterial spin labeling to look at flow um, and so on, that we can use these sequences to provide complementary information to kind of give a whole picture about the health and you know, state of disease and fibrosis within the kidney. You know MRI is based on imaging water. Protons, and especially protons as they are in free-moving water molecules. Now, anything that's like a not, not bound in a protein structure, in a chemical structure, would have free Brownian motion. So basically, the molecules bounce around. Um, and the more energy is given into the system, the more they will bounce around. So in MRI, we have uh, techniques that can look at uh, that free motion of the molecules, which is called like diffusion, which can be random, or it can be along certain directions. If you've seen beautiful brain images, like DTI, diffusion tractography imaging, those show protons moving in a particular direction along muscles or along nerve fibers. But in most places, the protons are, uh, would be moving randomly. 
Now, perfusion has to do with flow, basically with blood flow or supply of a tissue with blood. And it's usually measured in milliliters per minute per 100 grams of tissue, because it's not absolute. It's not for the whole organ, but for a sample of it. If you were to take a cube out of that organ of 100 grams, this is what its blood supply would be. So it is, it is an estimate. And it, uh, it relies on assumptions both, to, both about the imaging and on the tissue composition. Um, now, in more advanced models of diffusion, we can separate the true diffusion component, so the protons moving randomly versus the um, water, uh, sorry, the blood perfusion through small vessels called capillaries. So then we can try to see what kind of signal component comes from the random motion of the protons and which one comes from blood flow. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing more about how the kidney is more than just a bean-shaped organ. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you mentioned how uh, you're using MR techniques as a non-invasive way to uh, characterize tumors and and tissues um, to diagnose and and potentially treat kidney diseases. So um, why is it important to have non-invasive methods and, and why is it a problem that we don't have good ways to do this right now? Well, it's important for the patients, for the patient's comfort and for their safety. Uh, Although invasive methods like biopsy have become less risky over the years, they still have a non-negligible risk of bleeding or of of infection, of other complications. And I think it just makes the patients less nervous to have an answer non-invasively, to allow the doctor to look and comment on what they see without them having to take four hours of their day for a biopsy. And I think the problem with with imaging before, it was availability, it was technological development, and also you need something that's non-invasive, that's reliable, and uh, that's not too expensive. Sometimes you have to pick just two of all three. You cannot have all three. Like for example, with ultrasound, I mean, some people might not like what I'm saying if they're doing a research in ultrasound, but, okay, you fit the box of non-invasive and you fit the box of affordable and portable, but not the reproducible box. You're, you're very operator dependent in terms of ultrasound. If you as a patient remember going to have an ultrasound, you're spending most of the time with a sonographer and then the doctor comes in the room at the end to talk to you, but they also grab the probe and scan. Basically, they, they do what the sonographer has been doing for the last half an hour, but they just do it for five minutes and based on the images acquired by the sonographer. But why do they have to do it? Why not just have those images stored and be able to have them looked at by several doctors, have them looked at in perpetuity, have them looked at by a computer? Because it is very operator dependent, so in order to understand that indeed what you're seeing is what what there is, you actually have to scan. I completely agree with everything Octavia said. Um, Another important point is You know, in medicine, pathology has long been considered the reference standard. It's the gold standard. It's the final diagnosis because you actually are evaluating the tissue. But a problem with pathology is that, you know, you're only sampling a tiny fraction of the entire organ or of the tumor or whatever it is that you're evaluating. And, you know, we know that tumors and tissues are heterogeneous. You know, one small sample is not necessarily representative of the entire parenchyma or tissue being evaluated. And that's really where imaging methods, especially cross-sectional imaging methods like MRI or CT are fantastic because it's whole organ coverage. We can evaluate the entire kidney, the entire liver, you know, whatever organ it is we're evaluating um, at what time so that we can, you know, more carefully, and our goal is to really look at 
you know, regional differences in disease distribution so that we can study, you know, how does the right kidney look compared to the left? Or is the disease worse in the upper pole or the lower pole? So that, you know, you have whole organ evaluation using imaging. Absolutely. And even, you know, for, I guess, our uh, surgeons out there listening who love to do biopsies, it sounds like this also just imaging itself can provide a lot of specificity when it comes to how to approach and tackle that biopsy as well. Is that correct? 100%. I mean, you know, especially on the clinical side of things, you know, clinicians are increasing use, increasingly using image guidance to kind of direct how they, you know, t target their biopsies or perform their focal therapies. You know, imaging, as I mentioned, is really central to, you know, care, both in the clinical side of things as well as in the research side. Mm -hmm. Cool. So maybe it's a good time to get a little into the nitty gritty of the research that you guys are doing, um, at least in uh, uh, I work with mice and uh, and um, non-human primates when it comes to imaging. And uh, we use a ton, a ton of FDG. Um, and we know that that clinically uh, is kind of utilized a lot to check for whether a tumor is present, whether it's maybe benign or malignant once you have some further blood tests to confirm. But uh, what currently about the imaging techniques that have been out there for uh, understanding kidney disease are insufficient. What's needed? So what's needed, I think it's more more cross-sectional imaging. So in terms of in the nephrology department, I think relies heavily on ultrasound, which is great to diagnose obstructive disease, like urinary obstruction or vascular disease. And you could see if the kidney is atrophied, if there's like a pouch of urine next to it that can't go anywhere. Okay, and that's, that's quick, that's easy, that is affordable. But what ultrasound is not so great is uh, diagnosing parenchymal disease, so disease that affects the tissue diffusely. Um, and here we can come in with MRI. I think this is a huge opportunity for us. And then the other opportunity is renal cancer. Their surgeons actually are very into cross-sectional imaging. They like to use CT, like to use MRI for planning purposes to see where is the tumor located. Is it inside the organ only or is it coming out as well, so-called exophytic? Is it involving the large vessels? Because if it's involving the large vessels and it's making its way towards the center of the kidney, then that patient loses the kidney. If it's more to the side, they are able to have a partial nephrectomy. So just remove the tumor, remove a rim of tissue, sew the, kin the kidney back together, and you're okay. But, and then afterwards, there could be, still could be dysfunction post-partial nephrectomy. So they're more, the, um, Urological surgeons who, who uh, take care of the renal cancer patients are more enthusiastic about cross-sectional imaging, so, and we work with one. <laughs> right. And to build upon what Octavia said, um, you know, currently cross-sectional imaging methods in the realm of kidney cancer really at this point in time are providing a lot of anatomic information, just as Octavia said, you know, to provide the surgeons with, you know, information, you know, tumor location, its size, what it's invading and the presence of either lymph nodes, you know, lymph node metastasis, vascular invasion, or distant meds. Um, but what's lacking is kind of more granular information that speaks to the tumor biology. And this is, you know, what we're very interested in, you know, in collaboration with our colleagues in urology and immunology is kind of studying the imaging of these patients with renal tumors to see if we can find, you know, markers of aggressive biology or maybe even markers of more indolent biology mm -hmm. that could ultimately help um, the, pa the clinicians, you know, provide a personalized uh, care approach for each individual patient. Because, you know, patients are individual and their tumors are individualized and they should have care that kind of fits that picture for them. Yeah, uh, gotcha. So um, 
back to kind of what Octavia said in the beginning, saying a little more modest with your uh, with your desires and expectations for this about finding correlations. So I think that's maybe what you were just touching on. So right now you guys are at the state where you're uh, attempting to utilize these kind of new cool imaging techniques like diffusion, perfusion, and oxygen metabolism, um, and comparing those images that have been derived with actual tumor samples and kidney samples that have been taken that I'm assuming are then going through, you know, fancy stuff like immunohistochemistry yes. on it to find specific biomarkers. Um, so has there kind of been anything that surprised you that you guys can talk about or what what's feeling the most exciting right now about, about these correlations? What's most exciting? I think we, well, we looked at more comp more complex diffusion weighted parameters like uh, a diffusion model called IVAM and eventually the parameter that correlated the most with our biopsy samples in a study in renal transplant uh, was uh, the apparent diffusion coefficient that is the most utilized one uh, clinically so it's it's actually a good thing maybe we were a little disappointed that we used the fancy modeling and it was not <laughs> <laughs> it did not give us extra value mm -hmm. But uh, we should actually we should be happy that the more useful the most useful parameter was the one that's more easily obtained from RMR exams too. Very true. It's an oldie but a goodie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what was also interesting in some of our preliminary work on the kidney cancers was the initial um, work of looking at the IVI modeling um, and looking at that compared to some urinary biomarkers of inflammation. So our immunology colleagues, you know, did a panel of 92 imaging or inflammatory markers in the urine. And so we started to explore whether or not, you know, can imaging um, predict this urine test? Mm -hmm. And can this give us more information about the nature of the tumor? Hmm. Right. And can they be used together to predict outcome in the tumor? Like down the line after, after the surgery? Sure. Super interesting. Uh, you're, you mentioned sort of the, the collaboration with with clinical and research, and and I think it's so great that you know Dr. Lewis, you come from more of the medical side. Dr. Bain comes from more of a research background. Um, so I'd love to learn more about how those two things inform each other, and how you uh, you know how how you take what you're learning and research into the clinical space. So when we try to establish a collaboration with a clinician in another department in the hospital, usually. We introduce ourselves by email, we find a, our mentor to introduce us, and then we offer to give a presentation in their department. So we show what we can do and what we've done so far, and then we brainstorm ideas for potential studies together. Yes, I think I, I found my mentor, it was Dr. Menon, now he's at another institution, but he was in uh, nephrology, by asking around um, like who would be interested in collaborating with us on a uh, renal uh, transplant or kidney transplant study. And I, he became a, a mentor for a, a postdoc grant I had. And then he helped turn the grant around and make it much better. And eventually it was funded. But yeah, I remember going around the hospital, <laughs> eight months pregnant with my first, <laughs> my eldest, wow. looking for a mentor for the grant. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, Sinai is such a wonderful yeah. um, environment where we have people who are, you know, experts and leaders in their field, and everyone has such complementary expertise and that, you know, Sinai is kind of ripe for this collaboration, you know, for Octavia, the expert in imaging, and for me, like a clinical radiologist, that we can join our forces together and reach out to colleagues, you know, in other clinical departments and kind of form these partnerships. 
um, and really kind of gain momentum and gain traction and move forward with, you know, interesting projects has been really fun. Yes, and it's like it's worth cultivating your colleagues, keeping them appraised of your progress, like having periodic meeting to meetings to present data and then helping them with questions if they have questions related to imaging or even like questions related to imaging a particular patient who's coming in a week. <laughs> it's, it's useful. Cool. So, uh, so um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, your guys' involvement in the kidney transplant project, which sounds super exciting. Sure. So Octavia and I are super proud to, you know, share that we recently received an R01 NIH grant for our kidney transplant. Which um, is a huge deal if you're not in science. <laughs> massive, <laughs> massive deal. <laughs> so we're, uh, you know, we're really excited to get this project started. So, you know, the, the gist of the study is to, um, to study patients with kidney transplants who have, uh, you know, trouble with the kidney parenchyma. So they have allograft dysfunction. The kidney isn't working as well as it should. Um, so currently, the standard of care is when these patients are identified by their clinicians to have allograft dysfunction, they will typically undergo a biopsy of the kidney to evaluate what's going on. So we're interested in using, you know, MRI before biopsy to see if we can kind of elucidate um, kind of what's happening kind of at a more of a granular level within the kidney and then kind of correlate it back to the pathology with the overall goal being, you know, can we, can MRI have more of an important role in the patient's you know, clinical care in order to, you know, identify and predict um, the pathologic findings. Yes, and then with a, a new kidney, an allograft, so a kidney transplant, you are limited in how much you can poke and prod that kidney, <laughs> how much you can biopsy and, and have it still be functioning for the patient the way you want it to. Yeah, so it's a delicate balance to maintain the transplant with a, a regimen of immunosuppressive therapy, and which has to be tweaked because it can create problems uh, by itself. Uh, then also through, through a lot of blood tests, urine tests, and, and imaging. But yes, transplant nephrologists are not really used to MRI. Um, so we're trying to sell them on that to convince them to use it more. And this research project, which has been, by the way, six years in the making, we wow. had smaller grants before. Like we had a, a small grant from, Sarah had a small grant from the Society of Abdominal Radiology. I had a postdoctoral grant uh, from the NIDDK. We also had some pharma funding. No, I remember <laughs> when our mentor asked, asked for help, like, oh, our team wants to send a pharma grant on renal transplant. But he didn't say, Octavia, go write me a grant. Go write the grant on renal transplant. He says, okay, just research what's there in the literature about MRI in, in the kidney, and especially in kidney transplant. So I go, go and write that. And then he goes, could you formulate a hypothesis for a study we could do based on this? So I, I do that. And it was less intimidating than if he had said, okay, I want you to write a four-pager on <laughs> MRI and renal <laughs> transplant by tomorrow. <laughs> I, I just think that also speaks to the mentorship yes. we've had. Yeah. Oh, it sounds a lot like it. Um, yeah. I've had a, a been really fortunate to have a wonderful mentor relationship here uh, here at Sinai as well. And uh, it's actually funny that we haven't all collaborated before because we're working. We, we were doing quite a quite a nice project on kidney transplant as well in mice, and uh, we're designing our own uh, nano immunotherapeutics as a alternative immunosuppressant um, approach to uh, epigenetic rewiring. Um, in the bone marrow, so it would be uh, wow. less, less, uh, yeah, I don't know, hopefully, hopefully a, a more effective, um, less, less systemic 
um, immunosuppressive strategy. But yeah, you know, whenever, whenever after this podcast, we should all uh, chat, make this happen or something. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, share, hang a banana bag between us all, have a conversation. Sounds uh, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> uh, that's really really cool. Well, congratulations, and I mean that just goes to show how unbelievably clinically relevant this can be in such an immediate future for you guys. This the, that kind of research can really alter the uh, the the lives and outcomes and comfort of patients and their families. So thank you guys. That's so wonderful. So it sounds like that's really one of the benefits of, of being at an academic medical center, uh, having this kind of access to patient data, as well as the, the clinical teams, the professionals, as well as the, the technical side of really developing new techniques and, uh, and, and the research element of really being on the cutting edge of of the latest in, in imaging. I just wanted to say how grateful I am to be embedded in a hospital because mm. I know a lot of people in tech who have wonderful techniques who spend their whole life dedicating the, to motion correction, to like the fanciest algorithm they could think of to make a better pulse sequence, to make motion correction, but they have never seen, like they have trouble accessing patient data. They've never interacted with patients. Uh, they might be very invested emotionally in their research and not know if it's useful, if doctors actually find it useful. And then they come and present to a clinical audience and their bubble is burst. Mm. <laughs> so I'm very, I'm very happy to be working side by side with Sarah, with our mentor, with Dr. Tauli, with the fellows. So uh, to know how doctors think, to know how to talk to doctors, and to know if what I'm studying can actually help patients or not. Oh, totally. I completely agree with that. And also, like, from, you know, the clinical radiology perspective, like, learning so much about, you know, advanced MR methods and pulse sequence design and how to do advanced post-processing, it's, it's really such a collaborative um, experience. And I've learned so much from Octavia and from Dr. Talley as well. It's, uh, you know, I think you're right. It's, like, really the environment that, you know, kind of fosters this sense of collaboration and with everyone having kind of syner synergistic and complementary expertise really makes it a really enjoyable and challenging and rewarding um, experience. So it's especially wonderful to have two women in STEM here on the podcast today. Uh, certainly engineering, science, technology uh, tends to be in, 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 the, in history a more male-dominated field, and it's really great to see uh, two women really finding success. Um, so I just wanted to see if you want, had, wanted to talk about that at all. I know you have had great mentorship, um, but yeah, what's it, what's it been like? What, what advice do you have? Well, I think what I would, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've had, uh, fortunately, a lot of direct experience of um, sexism in the workplace here at BIMI. So fortunately, no, none of that. Um, I think the first thing I would say is just be excellent human beings, be excellent to each other. Like whether somebody's female or male or foreign or of a different race, of a different religion, just, you know, don't make assumptions. And before you ask somebody to fetch coffee, be the first who fetches coffee for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, if you're willing to serve and be, if you're willing to be nice and helpful to everybody, you will, you will be appreciated and you will be rewarded. You will get ahead. I think that's like really great advice and great perspective. And if I like kind of reframing the question a little bit, like, you know, what, if I were had to give a young woman who's interested in STEM advice, like what would I say to them? And I would say, you know, pursue your interests, you know, use your voice um, and, you know, 
find each other and find strong mentorship. That advice can really pertain to anyone from any background, mm-hmm. you know, right. but I think it's just good advice in general. And to really just, you know, to know that, you know, there will be success, there will be failure, there will be times when things are working out, and there will be times when it doesn't. But if you're truly passionate and care about something, you just keep moving forward and you have to be resilient. Um, and know that that's, you know, especially in science, there's plenty of times where, you know, our grant doesn't get discussed or yes. our paper gets rejected for the 10th time. And, <laughs> you know, you just, it, it's not personal. You just find a way to make it better and you resubmit and you keep moving forward. Um, and, you know, you take advantage of those mentoring relationships. And then in turn, you know, you mentor someone, you know, either a peer or someone, a younger colleague who's, you know, just kind of coming up as well. Yes, and I think that the best way to be thankful for what you received in the institute is to pay it forward, to be willing to mentor someone. Like, let's say, the new grad student in the lab, the new postdoc in the lab, the summer intern, the medical student who comes for the summer or for a scholarly year. Like, think I think of how I was when I was a first-year postdoc or when I was a grad student, and I, I tried to give uh, more, more of my time to the, to the person who has questions and to not make them feel bad. That, hey, they have this question. No, there, there are no silly questions. There's it's such questions. A, a healthy, uh, collaborative environment for, for learning. It completely is. Yeah, see one, do one, teach one was what we say in our lab a lot. Yeah. And that's been the most impactful thing. Because you go in for the first time, you see a procedure done, you're absolutely scared. You're shaking in your boots because you can't believe you just witnessed that. Mm-hmm. And you can't believe you're in the same room. And you can't ever fathom actually getting to do it. And then explain it back to me. Give it a try. That's unbelievable to feel that trust. Um, that's how you start to, I don't know, chip away at po- imposter syndrome a little bit for those coming up uh, after you. So it's that's really a wonderful thing. And I think that's a really special thing that we've got here at BIMI, and it's something that I hope that they p- people have at every institute. That's how collaborations happen best. So I love that uh, we just talked about also the future. So you're talking about paying it forward, mentoring the next generation. And, um, you know, at BIMI, we're not just about imaging, we're also about imagination. And that's really the genesis of the title of this podcast. <laughs> um, we imagine the future of healthcare and, and technology and its influence in healthcare and human health. So where do you imagine the field of, of kidney, kidney research, uh, renal disease, where do you imagine that, say, 10 years from now? So what I would like to see is somebody, let's say, having an MRI, and then um, an annotated data set comes to the radiologist desk, and parts of the images are highlighted, saying, okay, I think this is a cyst, I think this is a tumor, here the parenchyma looks a little affected, there might be disease, and then this system that does the annotation would be uh, some form of AI, but then eventually the person who would be deciding Uh, with the clinical information in context would be the radiologist. And then the radiologist would take that knowledge in a report, wrap it up nicely with a bow, and send it to the nephrologist, to the person who's seeing the patient, who orders the labs, and has most, uh, how should I put it, most interaction with the patient. I agree. And, uh, you know, AI is certainly like its own broad topic um, for another time. But, you know, not only can AI help us with, you know, detecting and characterizing disease, but AI can also help us make better images and improve image quality in the exams that we're reading. So that would be, you know, kind of one area I see in medical imaging and, you know, as it pertains to kidney imaging. But, you know, my hope for the future kind of builds on current momentum, which would be kind of continued growth of like a multidisciplinary approach to patient care, Um, you know, and having, you know, 
the biomedical engineers and the radiologists kind of working closely with the nephrologists and the you know internists and other people who are part of a patient's care team um, to really deliver kind of an optimized patient-specific plan. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm glad to hear the future is so bright and uh, and some of it, so much of it has to do with uh, your guys' wonderful contributions to us here at BIMI, us as a family, and the, uh, the wonderful clinical space that we can all contribute to for patients in the future. Uh, thank you guys so much for taking the time to come on our podcast here today, and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you both. Thank you.